Welcome to the Track Quest Podcast. I'm your host, the Blacktail Nut, James Orr. And joining me as always, my co-host, Bob the Bowhunter Borland. What's up, Bob? How much, James? How you doing tonight, buddy? Oh, man, I'm doing great. I'm excited. Blacktail season is upon us. Yeah, you uh, opened for you down south yesterday, right? Yeah, it opened uh, yesterday, uh, the 11th. Um, we get a one-week uh, head start on blacktail season for the southern units, and then the northern units open next Saturday, but they go a week beyond. And so we can hunt either side when they're open, I guess. So we get, what, four weeks in the southern and four weeks in the northern. It ends up being a five-week season, I guess, if, yeah. if you start south and move north. Perfect. And you had a little action. You you had about twenty minutes last night before you had some action. So why don't you? Uh, well, I want to hear a story. All right. Well, uh, a little uh, background is uh, I've got a nine day hunt planned to go to Southern Oregon down to uh, my favorite deer hunting ground, and. I've got it all set up to stay in a wall tent and have some friends come in and out of camp. I've got a bunch of my buddies coming in at a camp, and I don't leave until uh, Thanksgiving week, so next week. And here in Oregon, we only get one blacktail tag, and you know I'm jealous of those whitetail guys back east that get five tags or seven tags, and so that kind of makes you make decisions. And I'm not a I'm not a trophy hunter by no means, but I kind of decided that hunting around the house that I was going to hold out for a mature buck this just this week so that I would have a chance to go hunt down in southern Oregon. Well, first night in the stand, here comes a doe, and a mature buck is right on her tail, and I, I had a hard time judging the buck at first. And I elected to pass on the buck, and then, in the uh, amongst that commotion of him coming and going, I had realized that uh, I, I I felt this just gross feeling inside my gut, like why did you just pass on that buck? Like I've never passed on a legal animal ever, <laughs> ever. So I'm not good at that. And I also realized that that was a mature, like that was like a five-year-old plus mature buck. He was a three-by-three three with eye guards, big body, gray face. Uh, and I was, I was really feeling sick over it. I, I started shaking, and I was like getting mad. And so as luck would have it, about a half an hour later, they came back down the ridge uh, – him in this hot dough and i i ended up uh getting a shot opportunity and he was really wired up and i i yeah i i'm i'm i didn't have like a film to prove it but i'm 99 percent sure well i know he ducked the string i mean he absolutely did a spin ninja kick move and he dropped and spun and he and my arrow was in the dirt and he ran out there and I was pulled the pulled the binoculars up and I'm looking at him because I'm like, man, I swear I hit him. And I'm looking at the arrow and it, the arrow is sticking up out of the dirt and there's just no blood. And he comes walking back over to check 
checks it out and he sniffs the arrow and I'm looking and that doe takes him away and I had a whole bunch more deer pile through a couple really young immature bucks one and a half year olds and when I got out and I pulled my arrow out of the ground it was cracked and broken and so I'm pretty sure what happened was when it went over his back and he spun and turned he kicked the arrow or bumped into the arrow and it cracked because it's cracked like a third of the way up right where it was at in the dirt okay so yeah i had action on opening night and i missed this awesome buck (laughs) well at Uh, least that's the good thing about shooting a recurve you can always blame it on him jumping the string right yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I swear, Joel Turner, it was a controlled shot. I, I was, uh, everything felt good. I was relaxed at the shot. I was using my combat breathing. I had got myself calmed down by the time I took the shot, and I swear that he, he jumped the string. And, you know, I hate saying that because I used to hear that a lot. And I'm like, ah, oh, whatever, jump the string. But, I'm pretty sure he. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's what happened. Either which way, I missed the buck. I got a broken arrow, and uh, my confidence is a little bit down. But oh, you got a lot of time to hunt. Yeah, I got a lot of time to hunt. Um, I'm. And I'm you think re- the reason he was keyed up is because you you let him go. And I think you you told me this last night, but when you, when he came back in, you stood up and he looked yeah. at you, and so he was super nervous when you shot, right? Yeah. So when 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 he when I went to take the shot, I stood up and my tree stand um, creaked, and he looked right at me. Yeah. And, and, well, and before he left, I pulled my cell phone out, which I've never done this before. And I turned my cell phone on, and I went to try to video the buck since I was passing on him, which I've never done before. And I was like, well, I'm going to get some video proof of me passing on this buck. <laughs> and when I turned the phone on, and I videoed, I think, for 12 seconds, the phone got a text that had come through, and it vibrated, and he looked up at me at that point also. So he had looked up at me with the phone in my hand, and then he looked up at me again uh, when I stood up, so he was really keyed keyed up, it seemed. And um, when that when the um, when I stood up and the phone, or when when I stood up and the and the tree stand creaked, he actually did drop and do a spin move and run, and then he came back. And so he was he was definitely keyed up. And yeah, they I, the reason I missed the most animals is because of the. Jumping the string, man. It's it's an excuse, but it does happen, and that's why I think every blacktail I've shot out of a tree stand's been cru- walking. I don't stop them, and I know, you know. I think one of the Wenzel brothers they talk about that too. I mean, I just they're usually real close, and I feel like I have a better chance of hitting them good shooting at them walking a better chance than I do if I try to stop them with a grunt or something and get them real keyed up, even at fifteen twenty yards with you know, recurve, they can, they can get the heck out of the way before it gets there, or get out of the way enough where you hit them where you don't want to. So I'd rather just have them not know that I'm there. 
Yeah, and I think um, I keep replaying this in my head. And when he first showed up on the scene, I had a 20-yard shot of him really relaxed. Like, I think if I didn't have this whole trip planned and, you know, I would have been like, oh, shooter, buck, time to shoot. And But by time all this stuff was unfolding, who knows? It just... I didn't really like passing on him at all to the point where I'm reluctant to go back and hunt again tonight. Cause I'm, I'm shooting him. Like if he, if I were to get a second opportunity, I'm going to take it. And I'm not sure. Like, do I want my season to end tonight? Do I want to pass on the time spent in deer camp and with friends and, and it's not like this is my deer camp. It's my wall tent. It's I'm going to be there for nine days and my friends are come like one guy's coming for two days and another guy's going to I've got uh, uh, like Norm Johnson's going to show up for a couple days. And I got uh, I think Andy Ponce from Addictive Archery is going to show up for a couple days and uh, Carson Brown from Echo Archery Sherwood Shafts is going to show up for a few days. Well, uh, Edward go, Boyd. You go out tonight. And you shoot that buck, and then you go set up camp, and you just hang out. You'd be camp camp guy. Cut all the firewood and cook for them. That's what you got to do. I think you're probably right. And and I have this um, – I won this opportunity to hunt on a, a prime blacktail ranch for three days of my hunt down there. And I've always, for like the last 10 years, I've hunted around this ranch. But I – through the uh, Oregon Department of Wildlife and Fishing – they do some kind of um, deer habitat enhancement to this property, and in exchange, they let uh, they do like a drawing, and they let some uh, guys, uh, some you know, uh, resident uh, deer hunters, get a chance to hunt this ranch every year, or, or once when you get drawn. And so I got the lucky draw to spend three days to myself on this ranch, and I was reading the rules to this, and it says I can have one non-hunter or one one uh, person accompany me on this hunt without a weapon, a non-hunter. So I'm thinking, well, if I shoot this buck, I can still go on the ranch and I could have one of my friends as the hunter and I, I'm, my tag's already filled. So, I mean, I could still probably make the best out of all this, like you said. Oh, so you just draw like, you're not drawing the tag for you. It's like a trespass type thing. You're drawing the opportunity to go in there and hunt type thing right so is that yeah. legal then it, it, the way it reads is uh uh i can have someone accompany me on the hunt uh that's not hunting so i don't know what the difference of me hunt, accompanying my fr- i don't know yeah you might want to call would, him that one first <laughs> yeah 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 but either which way like you said i could still go down and learn yeah scout uh accompany uh, uh my friends and take them out hunting and and still have a, an awesome time but it's you know it's buck tag in your pocket yeah, yeah um seems to me like the, you don't have to worry about that too often so when it does happen when you do end your hunt the first 20 minutes that's kind of a blessing enjoy it because uh Spent a lot of seasons that never happens. I always tell my wife, well, don't worry. I, I took the whole month off, but I'll get one early. <laughs> and yeah. she'd be like, yeah, right. I don't think so. So, uh, 
Yeah. Take them when they yep. come, man. Take them when they come. I, I know. And I, th- I asked myself, would you shoot this buck in Southern Oregon on your first day down there? And it's like, absolutely. So what am I doing? Like, and I'm on the Oregon coast, probably the toughest place to take a blacktail buck and to have a mature opportunity to mature one. I mean, basically I'm an idiot. That's all I can say. I'm an idiot. <laughs> Uh, well, it's meant to be. It's meant to be. You'll go probably get a bigger one. So, uh, speaking of that, uh, tonight, who do we got on? Oh man, we, we've got, uh, my buddy and mentor, Norm Johnson from Blacktail Bows. Yeah. Norm is on tonight and I know we had him on episode nine. I think it was, he's the president of the PBS. Obviously he, uh, builds blacktail bows. He's been doing that for, I think almost 30 years. Right. And, uh, yeah. But James only kind of got a chance to talk to him about the PBS stuff, and Norm's a super humble guy, if you, you'll be able to tell from the interview, but he's also a hunting machine, and uh, we got to pick his brain about blacktails, and I think you guys will like it. Norm kind of, you know, we, we've done a lot of tree stand hunting talk on this one. We get some whitetail guys on there, because James and I have a lot of experience, you know, getting into that for the blacktails. And Norm, Norm does a little bit of that. He does still hunting. He does the rattling. So, so in this one, you get kind of a little different perspective on uh, all all the methods of hunting blacktails. So, I think you guys will really like it. Yeah, he's got a he's definitely got a big uh, box of tricks when it comes to the blacktail woods. I mean, he talks about spot and stocking them and calling them and uh, tree stand hunting them and still hunting them and. He's not uh, opposed to pull out a different trick for a different uh, wind direction or weather condition for sure. Yeah, so yeah, I hope you guys enjoy uh, this. Norm Johnson from Blacktail Bows on Blacktail. And if you're not a Blacktail hunter, um, well, you guys should definitely come out and give it a try. It's one of the more difficult animals to hunt in North America, um, but in my opinion, one of the most beautiful. And it's got some of the best table fare around i love me some blacktail backstraps that's right and these these tactic tactics when you listen to a guy like norm i mean even if you're hunting mule deer coos deer whatever i mean these are you know just listen up the guys guy knows what he's doing so hope you guys like this one yeah enjoy hey norm how you doing tonight i'm good james and robert both uh how are you guys excellent good yeah we're uh, excited to get you back on the show. If you guys didn't hear uh, the earlier episode where Norm was on talking about the Professional Bow Hunter Society, you guys should go check that one out. It was a great episode. Tonight, we want to talk a little bow hunting with Norm. Uh, how how was your uh, bow season this uh, this far? Well, uh, <laughs> the elk season was okay. You know, the, as you know, James, the first couple of weeks here on the coast were hot and smoky and not a lot of activity, and we transitioned into a a third week that was was pretty good. I had a, a close encounter with a bull, but uh, just couldn't couldn't get a shot through the, the heavy salmon berries. And then the last week of the season transitioned into pouring down rain, <laughs> uh, but uh, had a good time. Uh, gave me a chance to uh, hunt with a good friend of mine, Nathan Anderson, the last week, and. We got put on a lot of miles and got awfully wet, but uh, it was a good time. Awesome. Sounds like uh, typical bow hunting in the jungle here. So, yeah. 
uh, here in Oregon, we get a we get a deer and elk tag for uh, the end of August, month of September, and if we don't feel that deer tag, we get to hunt blacktails uh, in Western Oregon in the what we call the late season, which runs middle of November through the middle of December, basically. And today we would love to uh, chat blacktail with you. Um, I'm not not an authority on hunting blacktails by any means. I've certainly put in a lot of years hunting them, um, in some in early season, some uh, for the most part in the late season. I've always enjoyed the late season, although the last few years I've been very busy with the business and haven't put the real time in necessary to uh, have good success in the last few years. But the late season can be a special time if if everything comes together, uh, you know, with the rut, the weather, that sort of thing. So, and you grew up around blacktail deer. I mean, anywhere you've pretty much resided, you've had blacktail deer uh, amongst you, correct? Yes, I grew up in uh, Northwest Oregon. We had lots of blacktails up there growing up. I was on the Columbia River, and then. Later in life, I moved down the Oregon coast here to Reedsport, where I reside now, and that's how the name Blacktail Bows came about. Is uh, I have about three acres and a fruit orchard here, and um, I have blacktail deer in the yard almost all the time. They they eat my wife's flowers, and, and uh, <laughs> they they get into my fruit trees, and they they can be a real nuisance at times, but they're they're a pretty special animal. Yeah, and your 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 wife's even took in a a blacktail with the bow, hasn't she? She did. She's not a what I'd call an avid bow hunter, but we had a problem buck that was uh, getting up on the deck and uh, bothering the the plants on the deck, and he was also <laughs> raiding the fruit trees, and so we decided it wasn't real ethical to gun hunt him, and so she practiced with her recurve all summer, and that fall when the Buck started giving us problems again. She uh, used the lost wallet method to uh, put a stock on him in the in the fruit orchard and and killed her first and only blacktail with a recurve bow. Nice. So we know not to mess with your wife's flowers, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, tell us a little bit about the the recovery on that deer because I know you live right on the bay. Well, I, yeah, I live actually on. Uh, Schofield Creek, which is a uh, tidal, so it looks more like a giant river. And um, uh, she didn't make such a great hit on the buck, but he made a circle through the woods behind the house here and, and back out and made it to the river. And uh, when he stepped out on the the river bank there, <clears throat> she uh, made a finishing shot on him, and he, he took about three lunges into the river and Unfortunately, that's where he decided to die and began to float upstream as the tide moved in that evening. And uh, so we had to retrieve a boat and a big headlamp as it got dark. And by the time we got the boat in the river and started paddling upstream, uh, we found him about a mile upstream uh, floating with uh, with an arrow stuck in him. So. <laughs> So, 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 the, so there, there you go, Robert. Robert had uh, on an earlier podcast had talked about the Winslow brothers, how they like to to uh, kill their whitetails and then dip them into a pond right after they kill them. So uh, there you go. What was it? Good eating? <laughs> it was very, very good eating. He there you uh, go. he was tender. Yep, from uh, 
raiding the flowers and the fruit trees and <laughs> and uh, I suppose dying in the river helped as helped as well so that's yeah. awesome awesome that's a that's a that's a great story so why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about you know when you started bow hunting blacktails and you know maybe share with us some observations you have about I know you've hunted whitetails and mule deer and and uh, maybe kind of compare them a little bit and kind of get into that for us. Well, I, I started hunting blacktails a little later in my bow hunting career. I think the first year um, that I actually purchased the blacktail tag was in the mid-80s. And I actually killed a, a buck that year, and I was at that time hunting with a Brackenberry recurve. I hadn't actually started building my own bows at that time. And uh it was just a, a spike buck, but I was thrilled. I'd killed a number of deer uh, early bo- in earlier years with a rifle, um, but the concept of killing one with a bow early on like that was was pretty amazing. And um, from there, I was I was really hooked. That was an early season blacktail. I was out actually elk hunting that day when I stumbled into that buck and killed him. But I was still living up in Northwest Oregon and had heard of some units further down south here that had the open late season and had thought, boy, that would be a great opportunity at some point in time to get down there and hunt those. But I I didn't know at that time I was going to end up moving to this area. And so when I moved down here, I couldn't, couldn't wait for the late season uh, blacktail to get out and try it. And um, I had uh, befriended some other traditional archers at that time from the Coos Bay area and and joined them in a, a camp that fall, and we just had a fantastic time. And blacktail numbers were be- much better back then. We didn't have the predators that we do now and the hunting pressure and the poaching and the sort of things that have reduced their numbers. We just saw some incredible bucks that year, and that, that really hooked me for, for life. So. so before we get into the late season and the late season tactics, I know you've got a nice little uh, velvet buck in your den and I, I know it's a pretty cool story. Will you share uh, the story of that buck with us? Yeah, that was uh, back in uh, 1991, a uh, long time ago. I was hunting Roosevelt Elk here on the Oregon coast, just oh, due east of Reedsport here. And um, I had a coworker with me that morning that had never really been exposed to bow hunting and was kind of fascinated by it and asked if he could... <clears throat> right along with me that day. And so I, I agreed to take him and we, uh, started out hunting elk that morning, saw three bulls earlier that morning and then moved to another area. And he said, Hey, I'm, I've got an area that, to check out that you may not have ever been to. And so we, we drove to that area and got out and walked down a, a long skid road and out into a, a newer clear cut. And, uh, it was, midday but it was still drizzly and foggy here on the coast and it was just before labor day weekend i could hear elk in the canyon below us uh some of them were up feeding which was kind of unusual at midday i had descended partway down the canyon to see if i could see him because i couldn't see him when i came back up to meet up with uh my co-worker he was sitting on a stump looking directly across the canyon from us and had spotted two mature blacktail bucks over there feeding. And so I made mention, I said, well, I'd like to try to put a stock on one of those bucks. And he was, uh, 
he was a gun hunter all the way and had never really been exposed to bow hunting and just could see no possible way that anybody could make a stock on those bucks. And I really wasn't sure if it was doable, but it was certainly worth an attempt. And they were good, both good quality bucks. So I descended back into the bottom of the canyon. And and um, when I came up the other side, I had kind of lost my elevation some. And I popped out just at the edge of the timber on an older clear cut uh, where these bucks were. I was on the same hillside now as the bucks, but I couldn't see them. I had great wind, and um, I looked across at my coworker. He was probably 400 yards away at that time, just a dot on the stump over there, and he gave me a hand motion to go uphill a little higher. And so I moved up a little higher, and then I started to recognize some of the landmarks that I had marked while I was on the opposite side. And so I uh, began to side hill uh, just quietly, you know, watching to see if I could see the bucks. The brush was a little thick, a little high, a little higher than I expected. And as I side hill out there, I uh, could then see one of the bucks that we'd been watching. He had bedded and uh, just had his head sticking up. Uh, he was about 40 yards below me. And I knew the other buck was somewhere close by. And as I turned to my left, he was uh, about 15 yards, but he was frozen absolutely still with his ears laid out flat. He knew I was there. I think he'd caught a slight whiff of me, but he wasn't sure exactly where I was at. And we had a standoff for a minute. I had no shot at him even at that range. And he made a quick bolt for the top of the ridge. And I thought, well, surely he's going to stop and look back and I'll have an opportunity. And I had an arrow knocked and ready and tension on the string. And he, he never stopped. And I glanced back down the hill, and the buck that was bedded was now standing up, looking up the hill. He heard the commotion, and he was watching the other buck leave the area. And I had a wide open. He was quartering away some, but steep downhill shot. And um, it was uh, out the outer limits of my range, but I felt confident on it and uh, took the shot. And I hit him about centered in the middle of the back and at that time was shooting a Zwicky four-blade Eskimos, and the four-blade Eskimo uh, just exited the bottom of his chest after it went through his heart. Uh, I didn't have that impression when I hit him at the time. I thought I hit him a little bit far back, and um, so I thought, well, I'll give him some time, and I backed out of there, climbed across the canyon. Well, my coworker who was a gun hunter had watched the, the entire sequence, and he was just blown away. He'd never seen anything like that. He saw the stock saw the shot, saw the arrow in the air. He saw it hit the deer, saw the deer run off. And um, I said, boy, I'm a little concerned. I said, I think I hit him a little far back. And he said, no, you didn't. You you made a great hit on him. And I think I saw him go down and we need to go back over there. And so <laughs> we headed back across the canyon and tracked him out. And he'd, he'd only covered about 100 yards and, and he was laying there dead. And it was a really a beautiful coast four by four black-tailed, a uh, nice mature buck. Uh, I was pretty thrilled. I was pretty young at that time and small kids first married. And it was one of my goals. I thought that would just be really cool to, you know, shoot a, a four by four black-tail with a, a stick bow. I uh, hadn't at that time heard of many guys doing that. And, um, you know, I was pretty excited over that. Yeah. I, I still don't know very many guys that have taken a in the velvet coastal blacktail buck early season. And then like Norm talks about the spot and stock. I mean, 
it's these clear cuts in this country is so thick and even even the clearings have so much slash and i mean it's uh you really have to have some stocking skills to to move in on anything like that so i think it's an amazing accomplishment well it was it happened to be just a perfect day and weather conditions for the stock um we had uh foggy in most of the day and drizzly conditions and the drizzle had created uh, just enough leaf drip to break up the sound for my stock. And I had uh, just a, a perfect uphill wind that was hitting me in the face as I moved out across there. And as you know, from hunting the coast, trying to get a wind to hold in any direction for more than five minutes at a time is nearly impossible for, for whatever reason, you know, everything just aligned that day to make it work. So. Yeah, that's, that, that's awesome. That's a, that's a really cool buck. So, uh, tr- transitioning uh from from the early season which is uh like i was saying into august through uh, the month of september then the gun guys get their month at them in october into the beginning of november and then we go into the late season here in oregon probably is my favorite hunt so maybe walk us into the late season and kind of talk about the difference between the coastal deer and the valley deer and uh, some of your experiences uh, with uh, these gray ghosts? Well, one of the things I've noticed in differences between right out here on the Oregon coast and inland a ways is just, um, you could say, genetics. Uh, The body size of these bucks on the coast gets pretty good. They have good feed conditions all throughout the summer, and it's not that common to see um, the large antler growth uh, here on the coast side. I mean, there's some good bucks killed here on the coast, but um, when you get over around the I-5 corridor in units, um, well, we have what we call the Melrose unit. There's some good bucks in that unit, but further south in the Evans Creek and the Road units really produce some tremendous bucks for the state and those counties down there. If you're into the book, um, you can look at entries by county and they produce some of the better bucks in the state. And it's genetics and feed conditions, I think, that, that primarily do that. And, you know, we have opportunity in, in those units in the, in the late season to, to hunt some of those deer. And um, so it's, it is a great opportunity. It, it is a little, I'm not going to quite call it post-rut, but it is getting toward the latter part of the rut or maybe the second phase of the rut. Yeah, tell us um, about that. Gun- tell us about uh, how you feel that the rutting activity when it begins and ends. Well, I just witnessed what I see here in my own yard at home. And um, the latter two weeks of October, the rut activity really picks up. And, and of course, some of the weather can make the bucks more visible here. But actually, about four days ago, witnessed a buck breeding a doe right here under one of my apple trees. And that would have been around the 22nd or 23rd of October. So I think a lot of these does are coming in heat in this latter part of October, um, I see a good part of the rut activity. I think, you know, the does obviously continue to come in heat more into November, but the rut activity tends to start, like, for example, our season opens this year on November 11th, and I'm sure we'll see plenty of rut activity that first week, but I, I notice it does taper off do you feel that it starts a little sooner on the coast than it does down south or in into the I-5 corridor? 
You know, it's a good question. I, it, it certainly could. I haven't spent a lot of time in those units in, in the month of October because those are gun seasons. But I have spent some time with other family members that do gun hunt in the Melrose unit, and, and the bucks are pretty rutted up in the latter part of October over there. So, okay. But when you get further south, maybe maybe it is a little later. But I think for the most part, most of these blacktails are, uh, you know, a lot on the same same type of schedule. Uh, the second, from what I understand, I'm not a biologist, these those come in estrus. If they're not bred the first time, they come in estrus, I think, three weeks. It's a three-week cycle, which puts the the next cycle in, in and around Thanksgiving. And I have hunted enough years to see, uh, especially if we get some, some weather, a flurry of activity around the Thanksgiving time or the second estrus cycle. And we tend to have a lull that week before that. So I see that pretty, pretty, pretty common, whether it's on the coast or, or on that, in that I-5 corridor. And uh, speak to uh, conditions that are ideal for, for what you like when, when it comes to hunting blacktails. Well, I, I love the Pacific storms coming in um, when it's just absolutely raining and blowing. My favorite way to hunt blacktails is, to still hunt them, you know, by foot on the ground, the bucks, the deer in general are just up and very active in those conditions. And the visual sightings and days like that are, are much higher than days where the, where the weather's very calm and quiet. I try to diversify. If I've taken time off of work to actually hunt, I can't always take time off that agrees with the weather. And so the weather, weather's not always cooperative. And so in weather conditions that are, say, clear and maybe cold, not a lot of wind or rain activity, I'll resort to tree stand hunting. And in a in a tree stand situation, you you know, blacktails are they're just it's. I have hunted whitetails in uh, Wisconsin, and and um, the numbers over there at that time, of course, were were much higher. Blacktails are are more sparsely populated, and so you're you're just not going to see a lot of blacktails out of a tree stand like you are in a, in a whitetail situation. And, uh, you know, the blacktails, I don't think they have any more brains or uh, common sense than a, than a whitetail does. The whitetails are uh, many areas are really used to being hunted out of trees and deer, whether they're does or bucks in those states that are heavily hunted out of tree stands. If they've made it through a few seasons, they definitely get used to looking up uh, because they know they're being hunted out of trees. Uh, blacktails aren't used to being hunted out of trees so much. So it's not as common to have them looking up. Uh, I don't worry about getting a lot of tree stand height for the blacktails as, as opposed to a lot of the whitetail guys do. But um, you, you have to be prepared uh, to sit. You, you have to hunt by faith is what I call it. If you find an area that's got sign and a trail or some rubs or hookings, as we call them, hang that tree stand up and, you know, hunt by faith and, you know, know that the buck's around. Um, I had a real eye opener with a report that I read many years ago in the nineties when trail cameras first were developed, the Oregon department of fish and wildlife hung, uh, early trail cameras, on some migration routes in Southern Oregon and blacktails aren't normally a, a migratory animal, but they do have 
I'm not going to call it a separate species, but they do have some blacktails in the southern part of Oregon that definitely do migrate down there, and they were trying to gain more information on them. And their findings were were quite shocking because the trail cameras were showing them that they had at that time much higher mature buck populations than they ever thought they had in the past. And the primary movement hours, um, and I'm trying to recall some information that I read 20 years ago, I believe were between 11 p.m. and 2 a.m. in the morning. So I tell you that the mature bucks are extremely nocturnal by nature. So sitting in a tree stand in the daylight hours with your bow and arrow, waiting for a mature blacktail to come along, uh, that's, again, half the battle because of their, their nocturnal nature. And yeah, so, I I read that yeah. study also. I read that study also, and and that's exactly what I took from it was that all all the does and immature bucks were moving together at rapid rate within a few days in daylight hours, and the mature bucks were only moving in, in the dark at night, and they were taking their time the way they were moving into the wintering grounds. Exactly, but one of the things that if you have the calmer weather conditions, one of the things that will allow you to do is try your arsenal of calls and rattling antlers and that sort of thing. And I've had very mixed results with those calls, but I carry them nonetheless because you just, you never know. Um, rattling blacktails is really, I've had mixed results. I've had, you know, days where I've tried it over and over again, and never, never a sighting. And then I've had other times, um, I've, I've, you know, I've tried it on the ground, never had any success on the ground because I just wasn't able to pull off the shot. I rattled bucks in, but got spotted before I could get the bow up and, and get a shot off. I know, you know, a fellow up in Northern Oregon that's had tremendous success rattling. I hope you get a chance to do a podcast with him, uh, Mr. Ron French. Uh, he, he really seems to have it figured out much better than I do. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Ron's few, the the blacktail rattling master, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I did rattle a buck a few years ago when I was in a tree stand and um, just one of my normal blunders that I go through. I had been standing up in the tree stand for several hours. I told myself I wasn't going to sit. I felt really confident in the spot I was in. I, the tree stand, again, was just not very high off the ground. And I felt my movement of standing up and sitting back down was was just more movement than I was going to be allowed to do. So I, I stayed standing for several hours that morning, went through several rattling sequences, tried my grunt call, hadn't seen a deer, hadn't heard a deer. And I finally thought well, it'd be nice to sit down. And I reached behind me and pulled the seat on my tree stand and sat down. And lo and behold, I'd called a, a beautiful buck in and he'd, he'd walked right in underneath my tree stand and I, I never heard him, never saw him come in. And he was standing right under me when I went to sit in my tree seat and all I saw was him bounding off. He, and, uh, I know he, he heard that rattling and come into it and I just wasn't, hadn't looked behind me, hadn't paid attention. So. Yeah. What, what I love about your tactics is that a lot of guys kind of they tree stand they have kind of one way of going about it and you've got a, a deep bag of tricks i know you've shared a story with me in the past that i think is a really good tactic um that is overlooked and it's i'll let you tell the story but it's where you will um drive around and look for the 
the trails coming off the banks and you'll see some really fresh sign and then move in and set up a tree stand right on it. Uh, can you tell us the story where, where you've employed that tactic? Yeah, that happened. One of the better bucks that I have killed was just that very thing. I had accumulated, I think, 17 or 18 hours in a tree stand, and I set the tree stand up on a dead-end road uh, that had very limited to no travel. And in fact, in the 17 hours on that road, no vehicles had come by me. It was certainly open for them to drive in, but it was in a pretty obscure place. But I had been in there in the snow. It was... <clears throat> A few days before Thanksgiving, we'd had some snow in there, and I had walked in there, and there was a lot of buck activity up and down that road. They'd hooked a number of trees. There was a lot of tracks, and they were definitely using the road as a travel way, and so I put my tree stand up there, and I sat for several days on that stand. Uh, I think I had one bobcat come by, and I realized that the deer, I finally decided I was going to have to move. I just lost my confidence in the spot, but I didn't feel like the deer had completely left the area. So I moved my tree stand back to my truck, which was parked down the road a half mile and began to drive down another road in that area and saw uh, several trails coming off the high banks that were cut up with fresh tracks. I spotted several rubs. And so I picked out one of those trails and followed it in it went up over a knob and into a low saddle and several several other trails. They were lightly traveled, but they were trails nonetheless, all kind of converged in that saddle. So I thought, well, as good a place as any. And it was midday by then. I, I hung the stand up at, uh, I think it was 1.20 in the afternoon when I got up in the stand and looked at my wristwatch. And it was a very quiet mild day. I think it was the day after Thanksgiving. There was no weather. Actually, the sun was out and it was probably warmed up to the, the high forties. And I was prepared to sit till dark and I had my rattling antlers and, you know, a few calls in there that I thought I'd try while I was in there that afternoon. And I had sat there quiet for about 20 minutes and I noticed down the ridge ahead of me, I saw some legs and some uh, thick young fir trees there. And I got my binoculars on it and it was just a tremendous three-by-three three buck coming up the trail, and I felt pretty confident he was going to end up under my stand. And so I stood up and folded my seat up real quiet and waited him out. And he was, you know, poking along and just kind of sniffing his way up one of those trails, probably looking for a doe middle of the day. And he did. He walked, gave me about a 10-yard shot underneath my stand that day. And um, when I looked at my watch when it was all said and done. I'd been in the stand for 20 minutes. Perfect. I sat 17, 17 hours in the location <laughs> up the road <laughs> and 20 minutes in that one. So Now, was he walking just, up the trail you, that you came up? Did, no, he okay. was coming from the, 180 degrees the other way. Okay, yep. gotcha. Yeah. That's awesome. So so I think it, from what, what I take from that is uh, – Sometimes being mobile and hunting hot sign when hot sign's hot can really pay off. It can. I, I've also, um, I have a couple of tree stands and I've had uh, times where I've had both of them up because I have, I've had spots where I felt better about the morning hours in one stand and the evening hours in another. And so I've done that a few times, had 
tremendous opportunity with two stands up one year and and uh, one stand had a lot of activity i had three bucks one morning there that were uh, within shooting distance of that stand and uh, i just had i had all kinds of issues that morning uh <laughs> one the first buck my bow was hanging on a hook and when i went to lift the the bow off of the hook the string hit the hook and made a little sound the buck was only 20 yards and he heard that and bounded off and I thought, well, there's your first screw up and then <laughs> the next buck i i had been rattling and calling and and i looked on the next ridge across from me about 100 yards out i see a buck coming sniffing the ground i think he'd heard me and he was coming that direction but he just he made too wide of a loop and by the time he came around the stand he got on the wrong wind side of me and winded me and off he went and um a little while later i had another buck coming in from almost the same direction and he he ended up swinging too wide got on the downwind side of me and so it was just it was one of those days where um it was almost magical i i don't remember a three buck morning like that ever out of a tree stand but um I didn't end up killing anything, but I certainly came close. So, do you do you always rattle from your stands, Norm? I like to. Um, I just if I'm in a stand on a like I say, most of my tree stand hunting are just on those days where it's you know tends yeah. to be quiet. Um, Sounds perfect. Not a lot of wind. Yeah, the sound really carries on days like that, and uh, I have a lot of days where there's a, there's no response. You don't think there's a deer in the country. And then I've had other days where, you know, they've, they've responded. I don't know what triggers one to come in one day and one not. I tend to think if a buck is already with a doe, he's probably less apt to respond to what I have going on. Yeah. I've had, I've had mixed results rattling. It's such a, it's such a, I'm probably like one for a thousand or something like that, but I think uh, yeah, just the mood they're in. I guess I had a buck one one time. It was opening morning, and he was he was coming my way, but there's kind of a draw between us. And I thought, oh, he's gonna he's gonna get in that draw, you know, and go the wrong way. So i i had a I had a grunt tube with me in my rattle bag. So I tried the grunt, and he just looked down my way, kind of like, what the heck was that? You know, not a not a good look. And so then he kind of you know, like just standing there for a while. He went back to what he was doing, kind of cruising and I hit it again. And, uh, again, he popped his head up and I'm like, well, he isn't liking that. Maybe he'll like it if I rattle (laughs) and I rattled, Mm -hmm. I just tickled them together and it just, he just took off running. (laughs) So I don't know. I've had that happen before. Yeah. 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 I think a lot of times they're just not in hearing range and hearing or they're with a doe or they just don't have interest that day for whatever reason. Um, some of it could possibly be, you know, the activity of getting, if it's, you know, if it's the same day you've set the stand up, you've come into the area, you got scent blown around. I think there's probably other, other things that contribute, but, yeah. um, there's just, I, I haven't found a, an exact science on these black tails and, you know, like some of the areas that, that I've hunted over the years, I've, I've chosen because, of lack of hunting pressure and those aren't always the best areas people tend to you know seek out the higher population areas Um, i would rather hunt a lower population area with with no hunting activity and maybe some bucks that haven't been exposed to the hunters and and oftentimes that's 
you know, not the best way. Yeah, but, less deer, less people um, for sure. Right, right. And, and uh, while we're still on the tree stand, you, you've you made comment of having some low sets. Like, uh, what, what's your lowest set, like uh, height-wise, and, and what's the highest you go in a tree? Because I found it pretty interesting that it seems like You've made reference to only being like eight feet up. Is that correct? Or yeah, eight eight feet. Um, and some of that's just because I'm limited to what the tree is going to allow me. The, the the trees here in the western part of Oregon, uh, <laughs> we we just don't have the best of trees often to pick from to hang tree stands in. They could either be too big, or the the limbs are you know too big on the things, or they're too small, or they're in the wrong spot. Uh, I tried hanging a tree stand in the Madrone one time and about killed me when the tree stand wouldn't hang onto the thing and went right out from under me. So it's, there's just not, doesn't seem to be the perfect tree in the perfect place. And so oftentimes I take what I can get. I, I do like to be at least eight feet. If I can go ahead and get up another couple of feet to, to 10 feet, I'll, I'll get it up there. But I, you know, I hear whitetail guys sometimes getting up you know, 30 feet up in the air, 25 feet up in the air, try to get their sand up higher. And I don't really worry about trying to get that high. Um, if they're going to win me, they're going to win me. The best thing to do is try to set up, you know, in an area where the wind's carrying away from where you think the deer are going to come from. And you're basically just trying to get up, you know, high enough to get out of line of sight of the deer as he, he's approaching you. That's really my main objective. So, Sure. And plus getting too high, you can um start to risk n- not getting both lungs you know with that that angle so uh, i yeah, think that, I think that you can yep. yeah yeah that's interesting but... there was a story i'm going to go ahead and share um when i was i i i dedicated myself to tree stand hunting last year but the, the but for a couple of years there uh i was like what i was calling a, a tree stand hunter in training so I would hang these stands, but I would just go hunt the ground no matter the conditions. And I would sit in the stand, not when the conditions are right, but more when I was tired of hiking. And uh, that was one of these mornings where I'd sat in the stand. I don't know. I was there for about an hour, and I just I wanted out because I just wasn't uh, – I hadn't trained myself to sit yet. And I decided I would do some calling before I got out of the stand. So I, I did some calling, and I probably didn't wait long enough. And I got out of the stand, and I was uh, really not hunting. I was more walking back to my truck when uh, I, I caught eye of some movement, and I just dropped to the ground. And I kind of looked around these. I was kind of hidden behind an oak tree, and I'm looking at a world-class mature, absolute giant blacktail buck, uh, the buck of my dreams. And he's about 50 yards and he had stopped and he was looking my way. And I think he was coming to my rattling horns, but it was 45 minutes the later and I was out of the stand at this point. And I was trying to make a decision. Should I rattle? Should I grunt? Uh, I was, I was, going through my options as I was hiding there and I was starting to get buck fever and I was starting to get the trembles as I stared at this uh, monarch. And at that point, he had made the decision on his own free will that he was going to continue on coming 
the way he was coming back towards my tree stand. And so he trotted right towards me and he ran right up to, I don't know, inside of 20. And then he stopped and then he turned broadside. And at this point I was trembling like a leaf and I, I drew back and I shot right over his back. And at that point I, I wanted to cry but then the next thing I thought of was uh, call Norm. I, I just wanted to share this this moment that I was this br- meltdown that I was having. And uh, go ahead. So Norm, you remember that phone call? I still remember that phone call. <laughs> <laughs> so was he Ken crying? Calls me. He was he was pretty much in tears. He tells me the whole story, shoots over the deer's back, and and I'm laughing on the phone <laughs> listening to this. And he's real quiet now. He's not crying anymore. And he <laughs> says, it's not funny. <laughs> I said, I said, James, please don't take offense to my laughter. But I said, when I hear your stories, it, I just reflect back on my early days of bow hunting and going through the exact same trials and tribulations, <laughs> the same type of misses. I've been there, done that, and I can relate to it. It's painful. But you'll look back on it one day as a learning experience. You'll you'll learn to laugh about it, and it's just you know it's part of that growing experience or the journey that we call hunting. So, <laughs> yeah, I'll never forget it. I was like Norm, that that this is not funny. This is not funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's uh, awesome. So, uh, you you'd mentioned that still hunting is your favorite uh, way to hunt blacktails. And I would say it's probably the most difficult way to, to hunt a blacktail. Could, could you share exactly, you know, what still hunting is to you and how you go about it and maybe, uh, uh, uh throw in a story or two where, uh, y- you know, where you can incorporate, um, some, some of this. Yeah. Um, it, it is a very difficult, way to hunt blacktails you know your 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 best friend is is the weather on days like that uh i you know i rely heavily on the rainfall coming out you know out of the sky as well as the dripping under the canopy of the trees and high winds all of that stuff helps carry your scent out it it helps break up your sound and that that movement of the trees whether it's above you or behind you helps mask your movement as well and the, the deer, um, they just, I don't know whether the, the weather makes them nervous, but they, they like to be up and mobile when the weather's like that. No matter if it's middle of the day, morning, evening, uh, they tend to be a lot more active on days like that. And the bucks, you know, if the does are up moving around, the bucks like to get up, chase the does around. And um, I just have had, um, I've had, you know, great luck seeing deer still hunting have i killed a lot of bucks still hunting no but the ones that i have taken have been very gratifying um i recall one buck just a few years ago that uh very stormy blustery day and i had worked my way through a patch of drones and i had jumped several deer just you know got caught before i had seen them but i came out to the edge of the drones there was I call, we call it reprod out here. It's, it's reproduction timber is what it is that once they log an area, they replant it, the trees come back, you know, they, they, these trees can put on 
one to three feet of growth a year, depending on the growing conditions. So they, they really grow back fairly rapidly. But I, when I came out to this reprod, I was in trees probably a little smaller than your average Christmas tree. And I looked down the hill below me a hundred yards and I spot a, a nice three by four chasing a doe down through the Christmas trees down there. And they went over a small rise and disappeared. And that gave me an opportunity to, you know, really cover some ground to get down there in a hurry. And as I approached that small knob that they disappeared over, um, I knocked up an arrow and then just crept my way slow as I could up over that knob. And as I began to clear the knob, you know, I looked out ahead of me and there was the buck stand there. He, he had spotted me. He may have winded me. I had a lot of swirly winds, but he was standing there frozen. He thought he was hit. He was partially tucked in behind those trees, but I had just enough opening there in the limbs to get a shot at him. He was about 20 yards and uh, I was able to uh, kill that buck that morning, you know, just on the ground, still hunting. Um, I had another situation back in the mid nineties, different conditions might, might've put me in a tree stand, but I hadn't really begun to explore much tree stand hunting. Then uh, we'd had a lot of snow uh, I was in one of the more southern units there in Oregon, the Evans Creek unit, and I had been in an area that morning. I drove through the area looking around and had was seeing a lot of sign in there, so I went back that evening and just parked the truck and began to walk some of the, there was three or four dead-end spurs in that area, and it was, this was National Forest, and I began to hike those spurs in the snow, and the snow was very crunchy. Uh, very frozen, uh, just terrible still hunting conditions. But I would literally take a step and stand and take a step and stand. And there was just a lot of deer tracks in that snow. And so it really kept me focused. And as I rounded a corner in the road, a hundred yards below me uh, in the road, the road had a uh, about a 5% incline on it. Uh, this mature buck came out in the road, Uh, out of the timber and with his nose to the ground, he was obviously looking for a doe. And this was, I believe, Thanksgiving day. Uh, So it's in that, what I'd call that second ester cycle. And I was caught, I was in the middle of the road. Um, The wind was blowing from my left to my right, which meant I needed to jump off the edge of the road, put myself on the downhill slope and so as the buck kind of turned to look down the road, I quickly jumped off the shoulder of the road, and that put me back in reprod, just like I talked before. But these trees were much higher. I could no longer see that buck, and I didn't know what his intentions were, whether it was to come up the road, go down the road, or just walk across the road. I had to just hope that of all the directions he chose, he would come up the road in my direction. I just knew standing in the road really wasn't an option. I stood out like a sore thumb, and there was never going to be a shot. So I tucked my knees into the bank there. I had I was on a pretty steep slope and knocked up an arrow, and I had one window through the tree limbs where I could see what I thought was about the right height. If he was to approach, I was going to have about a four or five second warning, and there was a window right in front of me in the limbs uh, that he was going to pass if he came by. And so I I waited there on my knees, seemed like an eternity. The entire time I was wanting to stick my head out there and look, but I knew if I stuck my head out and he was coming, he was going to see me. So I I stayed disciplined and kept back. And as I watched that opening, 
the elevation wasn't quite what I thought it was. And all I saw was the top tips of his tines pass through that opening. And I drew my bow back quickly and held it at full draw. And when he walked into view, he was literally standing on top of me. I shot him at four yards, <laughs> um, shot the top of his heart off. But it, what was very strange about that is we don't realize when the arrow leaves the bow, there is that split second before your eye actually picks that up. And I never actually, I still, to this day, I relive that hunt, but I never actually saw that arrow leave. I saw the buck jump up and kick his hind legs and he bolted out of view quickly. But I thought, gosh, did I just shoot him or did I miss? And if I missed, this is a story I'll never tell. <laughs> and so, <laughs> I, if, you know, at four yards, that's a little embarrassing, but I, I stood up and walked up on the edge of the road and then I could see uh, lots of blood going up through the, the snow really makes blood look dramatic. And oh, I could yeah. see a lot of blood going up the road. And then of course I looked across the road and you could see a, a hash mark over there in the snow. And I reached down in there and that my arrow had passed completely through and was stuck in the snow on the other side. And I followed the blood trail just a short ways up the road and he was laying there dead. What, uh, uh what was, was your, a, what was your arrow set up, uh, on that particular buck? Do you recall? Yeah, that was a Port Orford Cedar uh, wood arrow with a four-blades Wiki Eskimo. Uh, the whole arrow probably weighed 625 grains. Uh, wow. The bow was a, was a Myrtlewood uh, blacktail recurve, uh, 64 inches long, if I remember right. Uh, it, was, it was quite a few years ago, uh, but uh, just a Dacron string out of the bow. It was a very quiet setup with that wood arrow. and so. Man, that's awesome. Um, on that still hunting, I know there's a lot of guys that don't necessarily hunt blacktails. You know, they just, they maybe hunt mule deer or whitetails out of stands. Could you maybe go Mm -hmm. over, you know, like what your plan is when you're leaving the truck? I mean, are you, you have a certain area you're thinking, okay, there's, you know, a deer on this ridge and, and, and maybe how slow you're hunting when you get into your area. Cause I think a lot of guys, you know, they hear still hunting, but a lot of guys don't even really know what you're talking about you know what i mean haven't done it maybe yeah we have yeah well well the first things i'm looking for is places that i can actually walk and i can walk without being disrupted and i love to walk um mud roads that haven't been rocked a lot of times when they log this country if they can log in the summer months they don't have to put the rock down on the road and so when they finish these logging jobs as long as they're out of their you know, in the early enough in the season, they can vacate these areas. They've logged them. Um, and then the roads that they built to do the logging, when they abandon them, they're, they're still there, but they're, they're dirt roads or, you know, clay or whatever. And I, I love to find those. They're, they're not often, some areas they're, they're non-existent. If they have rock in them, that that's fine as well. Um, but just actually taking off cross country, I've still hunted my way through uh, clear cuts. I've still hunted, you know, under some madrones and stuff, but there's some of the country you just have to avoid. There's just not, can you, can you, sorry to interrupt you. Can you define still hunting? Because I know everybody knows still hunting is, uh, sneaking around, but what, what is it to you? What is the pace, the speed? Are, Are your binoculars involved? Uh, how, how, how long does it take you to cover a hundred yards? Can you kind of touch on that? Yeah. Um, it it means all of the above because there's obviously times 
when I'm passing through areas that I have zero confidence based on the sign I've seen or just the habitat doesn't look like that's, you know, my potential for seeing a buck there is just not good. So I'll move through those areas really quickly. It's when I'm approaching the areas that just look, you know, I call it bucky, you know, I'll slow down to just, you know, a snail pace where I'm basically taking a step and looking and taking a step and looking and, and I'm, and I'm always scanning out ahead of me for, for just movement, you know, any, any type of movement. And I'll use my binocular. My binoculars are on me all the time. And, um, these deer will, they're in a lot of ways, like humans, they, they find these roads as, as an easy way to get around as well. They, you know, they don't have any problems going through the brush and, and that sort of thing, but they have places where they cross these roads or they'll walk the distance of them. It's really, I learned a lot in the years some of the years that I hunted when we don't always get snow, but when the snow is on, the snow really tells you a lot. You'll see things you just didn't realize when you can see how they move in the snow because they obviously leave the tracks. It's much easier to read the tracks in the snow. And especially if the snow's had two or three days to set and the deer in that area, you know, start to move. Uh, makes you feel like just a terrible, what, terrible hunter, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When you realize, uh, you think an area is vacated and you come back three days later and you see how many deer have moved <laughs> through there, then, <laughs> but, um, those, those were eye openers and, and, uh, you know, I often reference that, you know, if, if I'm going to still hunt and I, you know, the, the Melrose unit is, is a unit that I do like to hunt that has areas with Madrone. Uh, Madrone is really only huntable when it's pouring down rain. The leaves are very crunchy and it's fairly open underneath the madrones, um, but those that the, the blacktails just love the madrone thickets, and so those are, those are always good areas, easy to move around in. So yeah, it is. It's just a, uh, and I've been guilty a thousand times of moving too fast. Yeah. Uh, I, I've spooked I've spooked just lots of deer. Uh, it's just part of the game you play. Um, I find that the early part of the season you tend to go fast. You're, you're anxious and, you know, things kind of build and you're, you're anxious to see deer and, and get something done. And you just, you know, you blow it a lot and then you realize, Hey, I need to slow down a half a mile an hour here. And, and so it's, yeah, it's, it takes a lot of discipline. You know, it's not for everybody. Uh, some guys are bored out of their mind, especially if you're in an area where you just have a low, it's like tree stand hunting. You, you, you want to be in an area that you have, the confidence in um it's hard to still hunt an area you, you're just not seeing the sign or you're not confident they're there but if the sign's there uh the rubs are there uh again it's another one of those you know you you got to keep the faith and and, um, and back on those the bucks are there back on those the road you're you're wanting a, a road they logged in the summer they didn't gravel so for one it's going to be wet, muddy, it's going to be quiet walking and you'll be able to see the tracks, right? That's kind of why you're picking right. those roads. Yeah. And over time, as the clear cuts grow up, those roads 10 years later, they're still, you know, very huntable. Um, and as the habitat grows up, if the, you know, the deer are still in the area, they're, they're, they're still very, very huntable and well worth going back and, and hunting. So burns we get, you know, our fires, we've had a number of fires here in, in Oregon over the years. If those you know, those fires within just a couple of years, the, the regrowth coming back, uh, are often, you know, deer magnets. So 
those are great areas. Uh, they often do, you know, a fair amount of road building to fight fires or they use existing roads. And so it creates good habitat for those fires as well. Uh, and I've noticed from doing a lot of whitetail research that the whitetail guys really like the before and after storm events. But when it comes to blacktail deer, it seems like during the storm it, it is, I mean, is the best time. It really is. It's when I, I see the deer even around my house here where I live. Just last weekend, we had a tremendous storm blow in off the Pacific Ocean and it rained and blew all weekend long. There was constant deer activity through my yard and under my orchard. Uh, this this last week has been very, very mild, very sunny, very warm, and the deer activity has just come to a halt. So uh, there's just not not near the movement. Now, they're, you know, they're out at night moving around. Um, but, right. you know, during the daylight hours when you're out there trying to hunt, the, the stormy weather, I I really much, much prefer it. It can be miserable, um, but I've learned to adapt. You know, some days you just have to suck it up and put some rain gear on and rain gears just makes it, can make it difficult to still hunt in. But if it's storming, you can still get away with it. And there's good rain gear out there anymore. That's somewhat quiet. Yeah. Uh, and it, se- it seems like, it seems like whenever I see like a real whopper, but a picture of just a really big buck, uh, you know, with a hunter that's gotten them with a muzzleloader or a gun or a bow, half the time they're wearing rain gear. So that kind of is an indication that, you know, it's just like, yeah, he, he got, he got him in that pouring down storm. What's, what's your mm-hmm. favorite rain gear? What's the quietest rain gear out there, Norm? Well, the, this, I have a couple of sets that I switch back and forth with. Um, I have a set of uh, Rivers West, which is really quiet rain gear but it it can be a little warm and it'll tell you if you're moving too fast because you'll overheat (laughs) (laughs) and um, i also have a set of of the sitka rain gear which is a much lighter weight thinner uh rain gear and if we're having really warm weather i'll use the the sitka uh rain gear and i'll dress lightly with just very minimal clothing underneath it if we're having you know cold weather borderline snow or snow mixed with rain i'll use the the rivers west uh rain gear and do you put anything on your what do you do for your feathers when it's raining that's a tough one i've tried all kinds of things over the years and most of them have been miserable failures i do keep a sock over my feathers and that helps um to a point but when it's just coming down in bucketfuls you're you're going to get about three to four hours out of a good set of feathers and they're going to look pretty bad. And so I usually try to keep, um, I'm not hardcore enough to just stand out in it all day. You know, a lot of times I'll have a a thermos of of coffee in the truck and I'll take a break after three or four hours, make my way back to the truck and sit and have a cup of coffee. And I have an arrow case back there and I usually keep two to three changes of arrows in that arrow case. And I'll pull the soaking wet ones out, drop them in the case and I'll grab a fresh set of arrows when I go back out. And, and that, that seems to work fairly well for me. Um, Cause you'll get a few hours out of them. If, if you've got a sock over them um, and you can repel some of it, if they're just out in the direct rain, especially if they've gotten wet two or three times, the natural oils get washed out and they're just not as effective. But there's there's some things out there you can spray on them and they, they certainly help. I've, I've tried some uh, spray stuff, some powdered stuff, and um, they all work, but I don't 
some of these companies, I didn't, I don't think they factored the Oregon weather in when, when they developed <laughs> yeah. this stuff. I've tried the, I've tried the feather dry with no luck, but I have used a product for, um, it's for dry flies for fly fishing. And, and then there's another one called no snow that you can get from three rivers mm-hmm. and yep. you put a light coat, uh, let it dry. And I put about six coats, seven coats. And the downside is you do lose some longevity after season. Those feathers kind of get brittle, but I, I found mm-hmm. that it does uh, help significantly, but I do the same as you. I do have a chain, fresh change out of arrows that I swap throughout mm-hmm. the day. And then another trick that I've learned, I haven't gone as, as extreme as Mr. Johnson, but I have added a fourth feather. I learned that from you having more mm-hmm. feather, uh, definitely helps. I know you, uh, run like four or five inch high backs and you put like a, a whole chicken on the end of your, uh, <laughs> arrow, but I, I know that that, that's gotta have a, uh, that's gotta help a lot when, when you're hunting in the rainy conditions. It, it does. I, I learned that trick years ago and I, uh, it was after a, a longtime friend of mine, Steve Hubler. I witnessed some arrows that he had. He had these four fletch on there and, and, uh, they're parabolic, but you you start you, you set a make a custom ribbon on your Young's feather burner, and that's what I use. I'll, I'll glue uh, you know a full feather on my uh, arrows, a full cut feather. Uh, I use four and a half inch length, not a full five inch. But my ribbon is bent so that when you start that transition, uh, the way a parabolic is shaped in that that arc. I'll, I'll start that rise immediately, and then I get the the height of that feather. A standard parabolic that you buy, you know, from your normal archery supplier, they're normally about a half inch high at the highest point. And I go about five eighths uh, for height. Add an extra eighth inch on there, and I I keep the the actual surface area as broad as I can. And now I have four feathers with a lot of surface area and a lot of height, and they're they're a little noisy when you're shooting them in the dry, but for for really wet conditions, they you know they can get pretty pretty wet, and you can still steer a broadhead with them uh, pretty well. So you don't you just use those for the late season. You don't use those mule deer or elk hunting. Oh no, he yeah, uses no, those I use year round year round. <laughs> yeah. Oh really? Awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You're not the first and, big big feather guy. We had Mark Baker on too, and he's, I think he shoots like five and a half inch feathers. He's a he's a fan of big feathers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I've I've been shooting some three D with Norman, and I've had I've heard a guy say, look over at Norman and be like, "Man, that is a that's a pretty noisy arrow," and Norm gets a big smile on his face and says, "Yeah, it's it's the last thing they ever hear." <laughs> <laughs> you're you're making me sound cocky, but I, I did say that to a guy one time. He says, "Don't those arrows scare the deer?" And I said, "Well, it's usually the last thing they hear." <laughs> yeah, the, the whistle of but, death. Yeah, yeah. No, there's a lot of guys have gone to uh, these um, weight forward broadheads, heavy, you know, arrows with the heavy nose on them. And I know you've experimented uh, quite a bit with them, James. And and those are probably a, a great way to go because they, you know, you you just don't need a lot of feather to steer an arrow like that. Um, I haven't haven't quite jumped on that bandwagon. I think there's, you know, it's 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 a great uh, arrow setup. 
but I continue to do a lot of the things that I did years ago. I'm, uh, you know, in this modern day, you know, a lot of guys are using trail cameras. Now there's a lot of guys hunting blacktails with trail cameras and bait piles like apples and things like that. You know, if that's how they want to hunt them, that's fine, but that's just not my, my thing that the journey is very important to me. And, and uh, shooting a deer over a bait pile is not something I desire to do. I, you know, the guys that want to do it, like I say, it's, it's fine. It's, it's legal, but, um, you got I those, just, you got those you cheater, know, like the, those cheaters like James out there using the big piles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm a, I'm a purist like yourself. I would never use a bait pile either. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm working my way up to your guys' level. <laughs> I like messing with them on that. So speaking of the broadheads now, are you, I know you talked earlier about shooting the four blades. Do you still shoot a, a four blade or, you know, for the rainy stuff, blacktail hunt, me and James were actually talking about this earlier. What do you, what's your broadhead of choice and why? Well, I've honestly killed probably an equal amount of animals with just a, a regular two blade. Uh, but there was a number of years there where I shot, Zwicky Eskimo four blades. Um, I, it was just a, uh, a broadhead that I could sharpen, uh, with ease. Um, I loved the, you know, b- back when I started shooting traditional archery, there really wasn't a big selection of broadheads out there like there is today. And, um, there, there's some great broadhead designs out there, but, uh, I've always thought highly of the Zwickys and, and, uh, I got a chance to visit a few years ago at the ATA show with Jack Zawicki and just a tremendous individual, a lot of history with the, the broadhead company. And so there's some nostalgia there for me. And, uh, but I've used the two blades with lots of success and, and the four blades uh, are fine. Do I have a preference? Uh, boy, I don't know. Do you notice they, that they, uh, they really, the blood trails are any better with the, the bleeders on there and, without them have you noticed that or just matters where you hit the, them the, yeah it, the best thing to do is just hit them where you're supposed to <laughs> I, i've had a few cases uh and it's been more with elk than it has been with deer but i've had a few cases where um there was one in particular here a few years ago i shot a bull high a little far back and high with a two blade and it was a complete pass through and literally as as the arrow passed through it just was like sliding doors that just shot. There was two slits on each side of him when I, when I did find him, he, he didn't go that far. He maybe traveled a hundred, 150 yards. I still took his lungs out, but it was a little far back, but I had no blood trail. There was initially some on the ground that the arrow carried out with it as it exited. And then once he took off, there was nothing. It was all internal bleeding. And, um, would a four blade have made a difference on a high hit? That's always a tough one because yeah. there's there's always room for internal bleeding. The three blade guys out there, you know, uh, the snuffers, the you know the the Wenzel Woodsmans and that design, you know, I think for all out blood trailing is probably, you know, those are there there is something to be said about a three blade design. It definitely. Yeah. We you know, leaves a hole. So we were we were talking about that on the phone last night, me and Robert, and with late season blacktail coming, uh, I, I think I'm going to go ahead and order some uh, three blade, uh, just with the weather and hunting them in the rain, and, and I'm thinking about just putting a three blade uh, on the end of my first shaft, just to kind of open them up and 
and uh, not have to worry, you know, to hope to get a, a better blood trail. Yeah, it, it does. I've seen the entrance and exit holes from three blade heads and uh, they, they definitely, you know, cut up a hole that is hard to close back up. And so uh, they're a good design. Some guys struggle sharpening those. But but again, it goes back to shot location and just hitting them where you're supposed to. I, I don't care if it's a, a two blade, a three blade, a one blade, whatever. If you hit them where you're supposed to, they they just they they won't stay on their feet very long. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, um, say wait one you- before we get on the next thing. Sorry, I know we're jumping down a lot of rabbit holes here, but talking about those four blade Zwickies, how did you sharpen those little bleeder blades? I always because you were gluing them on wood arrows back when you were using them too, right? right? Yeah, I've shot them both ways on wood arrows, and then later I shot those on swedged aluminum, and then I also shot them with a long nose broadhead adapter glued inside of them. Um, boy, it's hard to describe on the phone how to sharpen those, but if if I had you here in person, I could show you how to sharpen those. They're, they're, once you learn the technique, they are really easy and really quick to sharpen. Um, it, it's probably not the safest method, but you, you have to turn the broadhead so that the point of the broad is actually facing you. And then you're, you're shoving the file at the leading edge of that four blade and you'll file one side of it and then turn it and file the opposite side. And once I see a wire edge form on it, I, I'll fold it over. Sometimes I'll just use my thumb and kind of fold it over gently and, and whisk that wire edge off. And they are, they are sharp. If if you didn't notice, Robert's a uh, wood arrow guy, and he's a Zawicki broadhead guy. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, I'm not. Well, I'm not a sharp. I'm not a real good sharpener guy, though. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and he shoots a black tail bow, so he's not a bad guy. <laughs> he's a he's a great guy. <laughs> <laughs> you guys had asked me earlier too about you know, the differences in, you know, white tail and mule deer and black tails and, you know, the different hunting styles. And, you know, they, they are all different, but, you know, at the end of the day, they're all still deer, but the black tail deer, I think is, is probably one of the hardest um, big game animals to hunt with a bow in, in our conditions here along the Oregon coast. Uh, you know, I've been down into California. I haven't hunted deer in California, but I've hunted hogs down there quite a bit. And there's, there's some terrain down there that's spot and stock. Now they're still difficult, but there is some opportunities for spot and stock down there in, in California that in almost mule deer type conditions that, it, that I think would, you know, probably make it slightly easier than, than what we deal with up here on the, you know, the wet Oregon terrain and a little more brush and cover. And of course deer that have a ton of pressure on them. And, but mule deer is a whole different thing. I haven't, Still, in, in all the years I've been bow hunting, I have not had an opportunity to hunt a mule deer in the late season. Um, that's on my bucket list. I I have quite a few preference points here in Oregon, and there there is a few opportunities to do that. Um, they're not great opportunities. Uh, Idaho has some opportunities to do that as well. My mule deer hunting has always been early season, early to mid-August, um, usually in the high country backpack in and spot and stock and you know i just love that style of hunting and it's i find that uh easier than blacktail hunting although you know if your goal is to kill a very big mature mule deer they're they're pretty cagey they just don't take pressure well and they disappear on you and 
that sort of thing. But if you can get the weather to cooperate in the high country and you're not dealing with other hunters around and you have a chance to stock these bedded bucks, it, you know, it takes some practice to, to get the stocks down, but it, it's, it's very doable. And, it, and it's a type of hunt where if you're in good conditions, you know, there's, there's a lot of deer to see and a lot of, a lot of, a lot of things to do. Uh, blacktail hunting out of a tree stand, hoping for something to come by for 17 hours can be a little, a little boring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I think also you, you touched on this, but blacktails seem to be very nocturnal. I mean, these mm-hmm. bucks, when they get over three and a half, four years old, you might get a glimpse of them in the velvet and you'll get a, I know at your house, you're going to see the does and the young bucks all the time, but mm-hmm. until how, till Halloween or Thanksgiving, or maybe in July, you, I mean, you, you really just, they just don't show themselves during daylight hours. Um, and, they really and so, don't. And, and they have uh, yep. a small home range, right? So they, I, I feel like they crawl into a blackberry bush and they bed there and they stand up and they eat blackberry leaves and then they lay back down and they don't, they don't go anywhere. <laughs> well, I've noticed that very thing here. I'll, I'll see the bucks throughout the summer months as they're growing velvet around the place here. And well, just to give you an example, I own one trail camera and I don't use it hunting, but I hung it in one of my apple trees and I would check it every three to four days. I would take the card out and plug it into my computer and see what I had pictures of. And I would catch pictures of bucks. Uh, Last year I had that camera hung up in May through the rut in early November uh, to mid-November. So when I hung the camera up in in May, I was getting pictures of bucks almost daily in the velvet or every other day um, that were passing through the yard. There was four or five bucks that were local here. On July 16th, my camera took the last buck picture, and I didn't get another picture of a buck until about the 15th of October. Right. And, and it's just, and, yeah. And, and I've noticed also, uh, you don't hunt too much around your place. We go to the Valley to hunt, but you have your daughter and, and some of your family members who come down to rifle hunt and they turn up some tremendous bucks, uh, that are almost like they didn't exist. And then all of a sudden they show up for that rut. That's exactly right. They'll, these bucks have a relatively small home range, but, there's, there's still, um, you know, I call it the dog effect. You know, you get a doe that comes in heat. I have no idea how far the scent travels, but, um, all the neighborhood seems to know. And, you know, we'll get bucks in here that we have not seen in the velvet. They'll show up to to breed these does. And it's usually right around Halloween when they show up in here and it, it takes a good stormy day. You know, we had a, a sunny, sunny day today and i uh, saw a few does pass through the yard but i never never saw a buck today and we're really at the peak of the rut right now so yeah absolutely so wrapping this up can you um you know speak to uh maybe the the guy that uh is you know lives out of state and he's interested in in uh putting an arrow through a black tail or or speak to uh, the guy that's been, you know, hasn't had a lot of luck, but he's been hunting blacktails for a while. Maybe some advice 
uh, that you would give uh, to the uh, new blacktail hunter? Boy, that's that's a tough one because you know the advantage of living here and hunting here is is a big advantage as opposed to just coming from you know, out of state somewhere and coming in for a specific week and saying, well, I'm going to hunt this week. And then, you know, I have to go back home or maybe I'll hunt this couple of weeks because the weather may not cooperate or it may be fantastic. And blacktails, you may be in an area one year that, you know, is, is a tremendous area. You may come back the next year and for whatever reason, whether it's, you know, um, predators that have moved in, it, it changes things. And so, you know, not having the ability to, to scout is, makes another obstacle for you. But, you know, the best thing to do is, is just, um, learn as much as you can through reading, um, you know, talk to the local state game biologists, uh, that work these districts with the blacktails. They can often, you know, give you areas to look. Um, and then, you know, I'm not a big record book guy, but there is information in there that you can glean out of there when you start looking at a breakdown of counties uh, where these mature bucks are taken, if that's what you're after. And you definitely can up your odds if you put yourself in a county where, you know, a lot of these mature bucks are coming from. And well, so, that all makes me think of something. The PBS put on uh, puts on these uh, group hunts. What, what, what do you guys call those? They are called our regional hunts. Yep. Regional hunts. And so there was one a couple of years ago uh, in Southern Oregon, in Jackson County, the premier big buck county, uh, one of my favorite places in the world to hunt. And uh, Nate Bailey, I think, was hosting these guys, was he not? Mm-hmm. And Yeah, Nate, uh, Nate was involved and a couple other friends of mine were involved in that. Yeah, and they were in some of the most awesomest spots. And the you know, and, and during the rut, and I, I, was there ten guys in camp? And I for I think there was only like, correct me if I'm wrong, like five or six bucks even spotted the whole week. I I think that's being generous. I don't mean I think it was five <laughs> or six deer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was just awful. It was not you know, it just was not a productive week of hunting, and and uh, the deer I think in previous years had been in that area, but for that, whatever reason that year, they, they picked that area and it just wasn't, it wasn't good. I wasn't involved in the, the hunt. Um, I was in some of the early planning stages, but, but didn't make the hunt. So I can't tell you exactly how it transpired, but I know that it just was not, you know, it was just, it was a blacktail hunt. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Is that kind of speaks to volumes of blacktail hunting, like mm-hmm. uh, it, you know, uh, I, I know I get excited about it every year, and then Norm likes to ground me because that's his job as my mentor, and he's like, "You're hunting a blacktail deer with a longbow. <laughs> have <laughs> have fun out there. Have a good time, <laughs> but remember the challenges that you face ahead." <laughs> Yeah, it, it is. And I I know talking with James, I've watched him mature as a hunter over the past few years and I'm very proud of the way he's come along and, and uh, his hunting abilities. But, you know, I have to reassure him that you've probably picked two of the more tougher species out there in, in all of the West, if not the United States, in, in Roosevelt elk and blacktail deer to hunt with a traditional bow and 
you just can't have the same expectations as, you know, somebody that lives in another state in the West and, you know, has great access to say Rocky mountain elk or good mule deer hunting where there's higher densities, higher populations, you're not dealing with the brush, um, the radical weather changes that we face. And not only that, we're, you know, you, you look at our seasons, the, the gun season actually gets the prime part of, of the blacktail hunt. The, the bow hunters really, we, I, I call we get the leftovers. And so it's, you know, we, we get the, the disadvantage. We, that early season is really a, a tough time to hunt them. I, you know, I have taken a few bucks out of the early season, but I, I generally don't plan on it. I did make a stock this year, which is the first one I've made in, in quite a few years on a, on a blacktail buck. They're just, when they become hard horn before the rut, they really hunker down and you just, you don't see them. They become completely nocturnal. Yeah, that's awesome. That's uh, that really just speaks uh, volumes to blacktail deer, and I know that you've kind of got a new little hankering. You hunted uh, access deer in Hawaii last year, and it sounds like you're uh, going back for round two. Uh, why don't you? Uh, why we wrap this up? Why don't you tell us uh, a little bit about that? Oh, the access deer tormented me last year, and I just have to go back. Uh, they were uh, just a, a ball to hunt. The the heat. On Hawaii, I was actually on the island of Molokai. The heat over there got me. I'm not used to hot heat and humidity like that. And that was a big shock to my system. <clears throat> you're just not going to, you know, take off for the next ridge over uh, unless you're careful and pace yourself, take lots of water. Uh, but the axis deer were, they're a ball. They're, they're very wary deer. Um, they travel in groups. Um, you very seldom see singles and these groups, you have so many eyes and ears and they're a very vocal deer. They bark at you, uh, but it's not really a bark. They sound like a giant kid's squeak toy and the sound carries a long ways. Um, I just had to laugh last year. I was over there that first day I went out and the first group that came by me were out of range and I managed to stay undetected and I knew that I couldn't move. It was fairly open and I, I moved close the gap a little more and, and I looked up on a ridge and I see another group up, up the ridge from me. And, and I, I tried to make a wide swing out of sight and move in on them to a spot where I thought they could possibly pass by me. And with, I don't, there was 12 or 15 in the group and trying to keep track of everybody and make sure everybody's got their head down feeding was nearly impossible. And I just had reached the spot where I wanted to kneel down and kind of wait them out, had great wind and somebody had to be looking. And all of a sudden I heard a big squeak and everybody's heads up and off they went. So I, I well, I've defeated here and I've blown this. So I went back, I walked out to the edge of this uh, small Canyon and I totally exposed myself. And before I could even get my binoculars up to my eyes. I had four or five of those things squeaking at me from across the canyon. They, they're just an unbelievable deer with super sharp senses, and um, I'm pretty excited to go back and, and try it again. Yeah, that, that that sounds like a hoot. Sounds like you need to get yourself, uh, build yourself a, a, a legacy bow with a, an access deer in it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So... Why don't you uh, uh, tell us what's new at Blacktail Bows uh, before we wrap this up? Well, um, the newest thing we have is uh, we've redesigned the Blacktail Elite. The Blacktail Elite was a 
the bow that I started the, you know, the company with back in the late eighties, early nineties, um, started as a one piece recurve and developed it into a takedown recurve. I think 91, the takedown was built and I basically made very few changes to that. I mean, most of the changes were cosmetic over the years. Um, but it was a, a dated design and I felt that I could really improve on it. And so we're just putting the final touches on, on the new, the new revised elite for uh, it'll be all new for, you know, 2018 coming out. So we're oh, pretty, right. pretty excited about it. So does it, uh, so that, and you still make the Sitka uh, recurve, right? right? Yep. We still make the Sitka, which is a 16 inch riser. And we offer that in lengths from 56 inches is the shortest up to 62. The and elite, then- is a longer riser and it will be from 62 uh, on up 64 and a 66. It'll just be in the longer lengths. And how long is that riser? It's the new one will be 18 inches. The old one was 19 inches, but the new one is an inch shorter, uh, but the hand set further forward in it. And the limb angle is different. It'll be, uh, it'll perform about the same, uh, maybe a little quicker than the old elite, but um, it'll be quieter and a little more stable a design and uh, a much stronger design in the riser than the old elite was you have to remember when i designed the old one i thought i was pretty smart but i wasn't what didn't have the knowledge back then that i that i do now and i still have a lot to learn about building bows but um, the sitka was designed in 2013 and and it was a culmination of years of of looking at things and and learning you know a that that was a design that I incorporated all the things that I wanted different in the elite. Um, and then after the, you know, we got the Sitka launched, then um, Al and I decided that it was time to update the elite uh, to match the performance and the smoothness and quietness that, that we uh, experienced with the uh, Sitka and just bring it up to date. So will, will, uh, Will there be a one-piece recurve still available, and will that be a Sitka or an Elite, or how will that work? Well, it it, it actually won't really be I, – I don't know how we're going to name it, but, yes, the, the one-piece will be redesigned as well here in the future. Um, it It's probably a year down the road uh, before we get to that project. It's a little tougher with the one-piece bows because <clears> – <throat> each to offer a number of lengths, each length requires, you know, a brand new bow press. And so the, the presses will need to be made, uh, bows be built on them, tested and, you know, get all the bugs worked out of them. And it's, it's quite an involved process. So, uh, it's not quite, quite as easy as, as it is doing uh, the takedown version. And what, what do you shoot, Robert? Do you shoot a, uh, an elite takedown or a one piece? The, the one piece. Yeah. So don't change that one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you got a 64 or 66 uh, 66 Robert. i like yeah, the long one yeah. So. yeah i hunted a with a 66 inch one piece for many many years um i i don't remember when i made that for myself it was in the very early 2000s and it was just recently when we introduced the new colombian blacktail longbow that i picked the longbow up and i've been shooting it <clears throat> but uh uh, that, uh, that one piece, that 66 inch one piece was with me for years and it traveled all over the, 
all over the West here on all the hunts that I did. The only time I didn't use it was uh, if I did, you know, had to hop an airplane, then I would use a, a takedown for my luggage. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been around for me for a while too. So it's great bow. Mm-hmm. You're a very, very humble guy, Norm. That's for sure. Yeah. It makes uh, amazing. Well, bows. thank you. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thanks. well, well, I think, thank you so much for uh, taking your time out this evening with us and, uh, we sounds like we need to get you back on uh, in the summer so we can talk about spot and stock mule deer. Yes, don't bring up the one I did this summer though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Norm, I I know you guys out there. Norm's a very humble guy. He's killed some giant mule deer, and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. So I can't wait to get you back on. Okay. Awesome. Well, oh, hey. Good good luck uh, in the blacktail woods, and uh, good luck uh, chasing those access deer around this fall, Norm. Okay. All right. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Take care. We want to thank our listeners. The podcast has been growing awesome. We wouldn't uh, be doing this if it weren't for you guys. Me and Bob are just two blue-collared guys just trying to shed a bright light on traditional archery. Um, So we just want to thank you. Don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean. Check us out on our social media, Facebook, Instagram. Keep the wind in your face, pick a spot, and shoot straight.